0: Welcome to Call Jeshrin, a podcast from Congregation Bene Jeshrin, a vibrant and flourishing Reformed Jewish community in Short Hills, New Jersey. Welcome. I am Rabbi Matthew Gewertz. Call Jeshrin is where you can come to engage with teachings of relevant wisdom and music. You will hear from our clergy, staff, and guest speakers who will help bring meaning into a world that so badly needs it. If you would like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at tbj.org. Statesman, historian, and parliamentarian, Ambassador Michael Oren has devoted his life to serving Israel and the Jewish people around the world. As a member of Knesset and deputy minister in the prime minister's office, he interacted with foreign leaders and defended Israel in the media. He spearheaded efforts to strengthen Israel-Diaspora relations to develop the Golan Heights and uh, so importantly, fight BDS. As chairman of a classified subcommittee, he dealt with some of Israel's most sensitive security issues. Prior to that, for nearly five years, uh, Oren served as Israel's ambassador to the United States. He was instrumental in obtaining US defense aid, especially for the Iron Dome system and American loan guarantees for Israel's economy. He built bridges with diverse communities across the nation, wrote dozens of op-eds, and conducted hundreds of media interviews fortifying the US-Israel Alliance. A graduate of Princeton and Columbia, Dr. Oren was a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. He holds four honorary doctorates, and was awarded the Statesman of the Year Medal by the Washington Institute for the Near East Policy and the Dr. Martin Luther King Legacy Prize for International Service. His last three books, Six Days of War, Power of Faith and Fantasy, and Ally, my journal across the American-Israel divide were all New York Times bestsellers. He received the Los Angeles Times History Book of the Year Award, a National Humanities Prize, and the National Jewish Book Award. Frequently interviewed by the U.S. and international press, he has appeared on the Stephen Colbert Show and the Bill Maher Show, 60 Minutes in the View. He was the Middle East analyst for CBS and CNN. Uh, he was raised in New Jersey. Uh, Michael Oren made Aliyah in the 1970s, was an emissary to Jewish refuseniks in the Soviet Union, and won two gold medals in the Maccabiah Games. In the Israel Defense Forces, he served as a lone soldier in the paratroopers and as an IDF spokesman participating in several wars and reaching the rank of major. He established the Lone Soldier Caucus in the Knesset. Michael Oren was named by NPR as one of the best college commencement speakers ever. By Politico as one of the 50 most influential thinkers in America. By the Forward as one of the five most influential Jews in America by the Jerusalem Post as one of the 10 most influential Jews worldwide. My sister, by the way, used to say to me, what makes someone such an influential Jew? She would push me. So we'll have to find out about that.
1: Have you ever found a non-influential Jew? Yeah, Well, not according to their own life. But... <laughs> <Really? laughs> They're all influential. He was
0: the author of short stories and two novels. Michael is the father of three and grandfather of five and lives in Jaffa. An ass. So... Yeah. Um, we are really, really uh, privileged to have you, Ambassador Oren. I remember when you came to B'nai and I'm guessing about 10 years ago, and we co-hosted with the AJC, and we had 1200 people, and most probably your parents, uh, in the first row, um, who um, talk about, you know, small boy, ta- small boy uh, town kid who goes out and makes good. Uh, it was extraordinary to have you, and as I said very early on in my rabbinate, we had you at Rode of Sholem for six days of war. I always found that to be such an incredibly clarifying account of a complicated time in our history, to say the least. Um, so it is um, my real honor as a rabbi of our congregation to welcome you uh, back home. Um, I know you weren't a member, but as you said, uh, you were at many a bar bat mitzvah and have, probably have scores of connections here. So it is really wonderful to have you. Welcome, Ambassador Oren.
1: Thank you, Rabbi Thank you, Rabbi Perlman. Thank you all for coming. Wow, that was quite an introduction. I, I, you, you may understand that I never got introductions like that in the Knesset.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mostly catcalls. Um, So you have (laughs) written um, a novel, which is not quite out yet, to all who call in truth, which is going to be published uh, May 11th. In fact, on Amazon. And uh, as per the title of the book, it has a strong Jewish theme. Uh, Much of it is set in, of all places, suburban American synagogue and deals with contemporary spiritual issues. So I want to get into the book. And um, we are going to spend most of our time hearing about the novel. So uh, it encourages all to buy it and read it. Let's start. Tell us how the the story of the book and how it all came to be.
1: Well, Well, let's go back a bit, if we can, to when I was about, let's see, 12 years old. I grew up. In West Orange, was a kid. I was very much a loner. I would come home one day when I was 12 years old. I had a very strange feeling. It's not the strange feeling you think a 12 year old would have. Came into my room. I wrote a poem. Sat down, wrote a poem. I never written a poem before. It was called "Who Cries for the Soul of the Pigeon." Um, Very depressing soul poem. I was, you know, an adolescent. And then every day I'd come home from school and I'd write a poem by the time I was 13 I had a collection of poems and brought them into New York to Alfred A. Knopf, literally brought them in physically on a bus and a couple of days later my parents gave me this brown paper bag that showed that they had my rejection slip in it this envelope and I went up in my room and I cried for a couple of days and little did I know that, that would be the first of many many rejections I think I had I collected them over the years they sort of was thick as a, of a Manhattan phone book if you remember what that was and uh, but I, you know, a writer was what I was, and uh, people often ask me, you know, at what point did you sort of understand you sort of leave diplomacy or leave history writing and start writing fiction? They get it backwards. I started as a fiction writer, and from poetry I went on to short stories, and short stories I went on to uh, film scripts. Um, when I was seventeen, a film script I wrote directed won the PBS National Filmmakers Award, the Young Filmmakers for a great thing. And for that, I thought I'd go to Hollywood, of course. And I went to Hollywood. I believe it or not, worked as uh, Orson Welles' assistant, which is another story. I tell that to young people now and they look at me and they say, wow, wow, you are so old. You're so old. And uh, But I also had this Jewish thing. I was very much connected to my Jewish identity, very much connected to Israel from the earliest age, from living through the period of the Six-Day War. And, um, and I just starting at age 15. I, I started going to Israel every summer. I, would, uh, I worked at the Crestmont Country Club uh, as a greenskeeper. Uh, I used all the money for my greenskeeping to go to Israel to be on a kibbutz and work for free. That's how crazy I was. I used to shovel snow. Um, but I loved being on the kibbutz. I loved being a farmer. I was a terrible farmer, but I loved being a farmer. I was a, a cowboy on the Golan Heights. And all the time I'm writing, you know, whether it be short fiction or, or novels when I was in public office in Israel as in the United States, uh, you can't publish while you're in office. You can write, but you can't publish. The President of the United States waits till he's out of the usually out of the White House before he writes his memoirs. Secretary of State waits until she's out of the out of the office to, to write her memoirs. Uh and same thing was me. So I would still be getting up every morning, even as ambassador in Knesset and, and writing fiction. And I had to wait to finish my term in office to to actually come out and publish. That's the origin of, of the story, that, that the book that came out earlier this year. That was the collection of short stories known as The Night Archer. The novel I also began in office, To All Who Call in Truth. To All Who Call in Truth brings me back. The novel is set in 1972. I don't know if any, well, some of you may be old enough to remember 1972, not our rabbis. And it was a very troubling time in America's history. There were bombs going off in federal offices and violent protests, Kent State, a tremendous sense of insecurity about the future, whether the United States had any future at all. And I think uh, you'll agree with me, that were being Jewish in America was being part of an ethnic group. I know that the great novelists, Jewish American, Jewish novelists who influenced me so much, whether it be Saul Bellow or, or Philip Roth, uh, Bernard Malamud. You know, you can summarize all of their writing in basically one question, and that is, how can I, as a Jew, also be an American? Because back then, there was kind of a contradiction. There was a tension between these two identities. Saul Bellow opens his classic book, uh, The Adventures of Augie, Augie March, with the line, I am an American Chicago born. Right? right, I'm an American Chicago born. Believe me, John Updike didn't have to open his novels with that. John Cheever didn't have to open his novels with that, but a Jew does, has to say, oh, I'm American. Today, you scoot ahead 60 years, and young American Jews, even ultra-Orthodox American Jews in Brooklyn, not only do they not ask that question, they don't even understand that question. What are you talking about? I'm as American as anybody. You know, No one's more American than I am. And it's actually, I think, one of the great signs of the success of the American Jewish community that you actually don't have to ask that question anymore. But in 1972, you did. I grew up on the sort of the wrong side of the tracks, the non-Jewish part of West Orange. I was the only Jew in my neighborhood. It was a Sicilian neighborhood. But the town of West Orange is very much divided between the Italian part and the Jewish part. It's a little like Massapequa in Long Island. They call it used to call it Matzapica, Matzapica pizza, remember? It? Yep. You know, half Italian, half Jewish, like Billy Joel being a Jewish guy trying to pretend he's Italian. It's, the Jewish community is centered around, very much around the synagogue life. But it's a synagogue life that was, how should I say the spiritually vapid. Yeah. Um, I personally read my bar mitzvah in transliteration. Five years of conservative Hebrew school, I did not learn to read Hebrew. Wow. And I, I'm amazed now when I go to reform congregations and listen to the, to the, the, the Hebrew of, your, of your, your young people, it's amazing. We didn't have that. And it was uh, it was it was they did some research once upon a time that said that one of the big factors contributing to assimilation was five years in a conservative Hebrew school. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> That'll turn you off Judaism. So I'm returning to that period as well, uh, a, a particular moment uh, in American Jewish history, where, along with the sort of the spiritual vapidness, there's also cameo appearances in this book by individuals you'll recognize, or some of you might recognize, as Eli Wazel, Shlomo Kalibach and Mare who were outstanding figures, for better or for worse, um, in our Jewish life in the early 1970s. And in the background, there's the anti-war movement, there is anti-Semitism. It's funny, when I first wrote the book, the first people who wrote it said, oh, no one's going to identify. There's too much anti-Semitism in your book. There's no anti-Semitism like that in America. Nobody says that anymore unfortunately, uh, after the last few years, and that people will recognize the anti-Semitism. To take sort of an everyman. My everyman is named Sandy Cooper. He is a, a guidance counselor in a junior high school. When he's not a junior high school guidance counselor, he's the football coach, he's the baseball coach, and the basketball coach. And he's also a student, he's a, he's a, a, a sort of a pre-USY group leader at the synagogue. Believe it or not, this is a story about betrayal. It's a story about passion. And it's also a story about murder. It is a murder mystery that Sandy gets caught up in. I,
0: I want to get, uh, I want to dig into Sandy Cooper um, in a moment. So let's go back to that. Just a couple quick questions about what you just said. Did you write this way when you were a paratrooper also? You said you write, wrote every day in office. You've written all of your life. Those must have been obviously intense years. Did you take time or did you have time to write at night as a, as a soldier?
1: I, I, when you're getting about two and a half hours sleep, um, yeah. all I could do is write poetry. And I wrote poetry, believe it or not, in the back of matchboxes. And I have some of the poetry I wrote as a soldier, and I go back to them. This is now, you know, getting up toward 40 years ago. Pretty good poems for a guy who's not sleeping. Poems about Gaza, poems about the being on the Syrian border, poems about desire, about longing. Um, some very funny poems. I'm, I'm surprised by the freshness of it. I think that that, that I think sleeplessness is actually is is, a, is an artistic aid.
0: Well, there's a vulnerability to being that raw that probably allows you just to come from I, mean, I know when i wake up in the morning that's when i have especially when i'm tired the most important insights come to me they often run away right after but they often come to me i it was funny when i first got here and i interviewed 15 years ago they said what do you want your religious school to be like and i said i no longer want to hear parents walking their kid in while the kid says i don't want to go i don't want to go why do i have to go and the father says, I don't know why you have to go, but I had to go. I hated it. You're going to have to go. <laughs> and I said, you know, when that right. ends, we know we're doing something right. So uh, that religion that you describe is, is not just unique to conservative synagogues, but probably synagogues and all non Orthodox uh, movements. So, one other quick thing. Right. So, you said that in 1972, you'd have to write, or when Saul Bella wrote, I am, you know, identify yourself. Today, Uh, given what's gone on in the last five or 10 years, or at least what we've woken up to, do you think, A, Jewish writers have to write that way again? And B, do you think the non-Jewish reader, um, when reading it, has different feelings about us, even though we feel like we don't have to identify ourselves that way anymore?
1: My sense is that Jews have a hard time making the case that that we are an ethnicity today. And I think the biggest problem that Jewish writers have today is not writing about Jews' ethnicity, but writing about people who are not white. And because I didn't grow up white, I'll never forget, um, I I played sports in college, edged in the graffiti in one of the bathroom stalls in my gym, where we worked out was the following question, are Jews white? Underneath, someone had scribbled in the answer, and the answer was yes, but. But has been taken away. (laughs) And for certain ways, uh, Jews are are sometimes like the ultimate white people in terms of being privileged. So one of the, the challenges I think that I may have with this book, I don't know yet, is that I have uh, three uh, prominent African-American characters in this book. Growing up Jewish, particularly near Newark, and my my father, those of you may remember him, he passed away uh, four months ago, was the uh, director of Beth Israel Medical Center for for 40 years and and dedicated his life to relations, building bridges between the uh, Jewish community and the African-American community. Beth Israel, if you know this, after the 1967 riots, all the hospitals moved out to the suburbs, St. Barnabas moved out to the suburbs, except for Beth Israel. Beth Israel, the Jewish board made a decision that they would stay and serve the the African-American community of Newark as a Jewish hospital and remain a Jewish hospital. That was an extraordinary moment. I grew up with different types of relationship with different types of African-Americans. One of the the central figures is the the, the custodian in the synagogue whose name is Lewis, who's based on a a real character person who, who had a profound impact on me, taught me how to play chess. In the book, he is a source of spirituality in the synagogue is the African-American janitor and a person who understands Stanley Cooper. And there's another character, a very controversial character for me. I mean, he was a complex character is a, is, a, is a young woman who is the only first and only African-American student in this junior high school. And her problem is not racism. It's reverse racism because this book is taking place at the height of the civil rights movement and everybody is bending over backwards to be so nice to her, give her straight A's and, and, and just be polite to her all the time that at 14 years old, an adolescent just wants to blend in, doesn't want to stick out. And she, her problem is that not that she's not popular, but that she's too popular. And it, I, I took, I believe, a, a real life situation of a real life adolescent in the, in the age of uh, cultural and racial appropriation and cancel cultures, whether this is gonna prove uh, controversial or not. I
0: almost guarantee you that it will some places, somewhere. And I also, I really hope that you will dig into it because I think that it's not being spoken about with subtlety or sophistication. And instead, as you use the word cancel culture, Uh, We divide and segregate very quickly these days without talking about issues. And I wonder, this is for another conversation, if tshuva is even possible right now, um, given what's needed for tshuva and the myopic ways that we um, approach these conversations. So I I think it's a great opportunity for you to do that. And uh, Black-Jewish relations since those days about which you speak are very, very different um, right now. And uh, I would say our communities don't know each other in the ways that we did once upon a time. Clem Price, you may remember, do you remember that name? Uh, He was uh, Clement Price, who was the foremost black historian in Newark and very close to the Jewish community, unfortunately died younger than he uh, should have said, you know, in those days, we were all sort of fighting for the same thing, which was acceptance in America. And he said, you know, the difference is, is that our hue was different enough that if you changed your name, you could become American much more easily Uh, that a Black person could, but we understood each other in ways that were very different. I really do hope that that gets unwrapped as you go around. The book is set, um, I'm going to change gears for a second, because I really want to make sure we get back to some of the premise here, set in four sections, the seasons. So why, why did you organize that way? Well,
1: it's really around sports because <laughs> Sandy, as, as a young man, thought he was going to be a, a, a great fo- professional football player. And one Thanksgiving game, he gets injured in such a way that not just alters his, his, his sports career, but alters his life. And of course, all these stories, come, everyone in this book is composite of people. Uh, the, the person who breaks his leg on Thanksgiving game was a wonderful neighbor of mine, Vito Susante, who was going to go to Annapolis be a football star and broke his leg on, in his senior year at a Thanksgiving game and um, and ended up going into the dry cleaning business, which is nothing wrong with dry cleaning business, but it wasn't what his dream was. And so it's, it's really around that one year. And that one year includes Jewish holidays. It includes non-Jewish coffee. There's, there's Passover here. There's Purim in here, right? There's the high holidays. It ends really on, on, on Yom Kippur and draws on real events. Um, some of you may remember that my synagogue, what was then called the Jewish Center of West Orange, in 1972 was bombed. Right. And the sanctuary was destroyed. Unclear who bombed it. The, the FBI thought it may have been the, the Ku Klux Klan. Ku Klux Klan was big in New Jersey back then. And people don't remember that. But I'll, I, it is emblazoned, emblazoned on my memory. Getting a phone call. I was at a friend's house saying, come down, the, the synagogue on fire. Running down there and seeing the entire sanctuary in flames with firemen, the great Irish firemen, diving into the flames and coming out with Torah scrolls. And the next day, the entire city of West Orange marched arm in arm down Pleasant Valley Way with the uh, the clergy leading us to the high school where we all sang, we stood and sang If We Only Had Love, uh, the Jacques Morel song. Now, you can't imagine this happening today. This happened in my lifetime. It was a formative event, and uh, it finds its expression in the book.
0: You know that's you know I've been here for 15 years and I feel like I've been told every story about Newark and Essex County. I've never heard that story, believe it or not. And so I'm thinking about so that's 72. That's blazing. And how old were you in 72?
1: 16. 16. 16. Uh, that's 17?
0: on your spirit. And then you have Munich that same year. And then it's you in the book have... as well. <laughs> and then the next year, of course, is the Yom Kippur War, which also revolves around Shul. Because I remember, you know, how my rabbi reacted as a kid. So that so all of that. And, and so you think about—it's funny—we've been talking about this year. How much more can we take? You know, the pandemic, George Floyd, January six, and you feel like you know our teenagers. Like, what is going to be you know marked in their memory? It sounds like that year was something that you'll never forget, and probably is defined who you are.
1: It's true. It's true. And 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 I was in Shul and Yom Kippur, where the rumors started going around. Right. And I had just come back from Israel. I had just come back from the Golan Heights. And it was very, a very traumatic time for me. Having said all that, if I could say a bit about sort of the Jewish nature of writing in general, writing itself is very much a part of my identity, whether I'm writing about Jewish subjects or not. And that is, you know, living in, in Israel, we dig up a lot of things and we dig up a lot of artifacts. Almost all the architecture and art we dig up is derivative. It's Roman, it's Greek, it's Egyptian. There's really no ancient Jewish tradition of art and of architecture. And the Bible talks a lot about music, right, in the Psalms, but we really don't know what it sounded like. But what we do have in vast abundance is, is literature. Uh, we have short stories like the book of Jonah, one of my favorites, all of a page and a half and immense economy of language. So much, you can discuss the book of Jonah forever. For me, it's a it's a primer on, on political leadership. And you have stories. You have the Exodus from Egypt, which is one of the great you know, odysseys, you know, the hero trying to get home. So we have this tradition of writing, which, but our writing is also a very specific writing. I think that, that this is what Jews in part not just to to literature, but they apart to civilization. It's another little Jewish gift, but it's a very important gift. It, it's our concept of freedom. Because on hand, one hand, you know, writing is the ultimate freedom. It's great. I can be anybody I want anytime. I could be a 14-year-old African-American girl in, a, in, in 1972, or I can be, in, in the short story book, I can be can be in the Middle Ages or the 19th century. I could be a woman. I could be a man. I could be a straight man, not a straight man. You, you name it, I could be this great, great, great freedom. But on the other hand, writing itself, and I understood this when I was writing that part, when I was 12 years old, writing is about discipline. It's about form, it's about economy, it's about meter. It's not the the freedom we wanted where we said we wanted in the 60s and the 70s. It's the freedom of Egypt. It's coming out of slavery, but then getting to Sinai, being made to understand that the only true freedom is the freedom that comes with limitations, with discipline. And it's a very Jewish idea, it's a Jewish paradox. And it's a paradox that informs the, 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 the framers of the constitution you know, who understood that the only true freedom comes with checks and balances. It's very Jewish. And I, I find that, I find that whether I'm writing the discipline that requires to write a short story, which is basically compressing 300 pages into three or writing a novel, which is a whole different set of, uh, of disciplinary challenges. I'm engaged in something that I think is very much, very, very Jewish.
0: Gene Barowitz, all of Shalom used to teach us in rabbinic school that, you know, we didn't leave to be slaves of Pharaoh to be free. We went to be slaves of God, to serve God which of course comes with boundaries and limitations. And uh, autonomy doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It's you know, autonomous, it's, it's, uh, it's a liberation that comes with ethics and values and, and a way to live. And David Ellenson used to tell the story of Leo Beck who had his magnus opus destroyed by the Nazis. And then whatever it meant, I don't know how he how did this, rewrote it in the camps, came back out, and his sense of freedom was to be able to write even while he was being, you know, oppressed would be an understatement. Why don't you read a piece for us, and then we'll dig a little bit further in.
1: This is a conversation between Sandy and his best friend, uh, who is his name Saperstein, and he calls him Saps. Uh, they grew up together. Saps is a cop, and Jewish cop, and uh, they're discussing two, um, two students. There's this Howard, who is a fat, uncoordinated, coordinated, uh, sort of obnoxious kid, and, and Russell Pressman, who's the, the star of every sport, the heartthrob of the school. Um, and then there's Esther. This is uh, Sandy's wife of many, many years, Esther. And the first, uh, every Sunday, um, Sandy and Saps play handball at the YMHA. And they've just finished their handball game. And then they go out for their usual Sunday brunch. This may sound familiar to some of you from the area. The topic of Howard and Russell had to wait, though, until after they removed their sweat-darkened Appleton Rams and Appleton PAL t-shirts, showered and drove to Sabotnics. Located on Union Street, halfway between the school and the temple, the deli had always been there, a magical source of halva and fat sour pickles for kids and for adults, the Sunday brunch special. There in a rear alcove crammed with two customer tables over pastrami and rye and sodas, Sandy felt secure enough to speak. Was wanting success for one student obscuring his responsibilities toward another, he asked. Was he being selfish or even negligent? What you're being is a guy who does his job, Saps responded between chews. He didn't so much eat as assault his sandwich, gutting it between his fists. You wouldn't go easy on that su- su- that easy on a suspect, Sandy said. Looking up with one closed eye, a strand of coleslaw stuck to his lower lip, Saps drilled him. Suspected of what exactly? Being a hopelessly decent guy with an outdated sense of duty? Sandy picked at his meal. Beneath the receding hairline and the head so narrow the service caps wobbled on it. Behind the long hooked nose and a tiny mouth that should have traded dimensions lay a deceptive, lacerating mind. Okay, you wanna know the truth? I'll give you truth, Sandy's stomachs clenched. The quarterback, Pressman, he's what you were, what you wanted to be. And that other one, the fatso, wine what you're afraid of becoming. Brilliant, Sandy slapped the table. You should have been a shrink. Randising a pickle spear, saps agreed, and you should have been my patient. A silence followed which neither of them, friends for so many years, felt compelled to feel, fill. Not that there was a shortage of noise, of plates clanging in the kitchen, knives chopping, calls for more chopped liver. Behind the counter, Bernie, a man so obese he strained his apron, served tubs of whitefish to customers carrying newspapers from Wexler's Drugs next door, or a babka from Hershey's Bakery. Manashevitz calendar on the walls, the miniature vats of mustard, relish, and chrein, a fan frozen as an old clock on the ceiling. Sandy lamented, someday this world will disappear. Yeah, well, sap swallowed, they all do. You should, I,
0: I wish, I know you were looking <laughs> down reading, I wish you could see the expressions on the faces of people who obviously know the places to which you're referring. Um, it's extraordinary how you vividly tie all that in. Sandy Cooper's a complicated figure. It's interesting, you know, high school counselor, football coach, Temple Youth Advisor, and he's always in the middle of controversy. Tell us more about him and what you do with him in the book
1: one of the I guess the criticism of the book is you want you want it that was that the people are very confused or, or put it this way they're ambivalent about Sammy. and he's an ambivalent character um he's, he's an ambivalent hero but he is every everyman he's a real person and he's a real person confronted with his weaknesses and his strengths uh his fears uh he gets caught up in a situation that is completely beyond his ability to, to cope with he tries to be a loyal son to a ever unaccepting father he tries to, to remain in his marriage even though it is, it is sort of become itself sort of uh, loveless and uh, and unfulfilling but his principal duty to the very last day is to his students He is he is thoroughly dedicated uh, to his students it's the most important thing in his life in many ways and for that reason I think he's deserving of our respect if not our, our affection Sandy tries and in certain ways Sandy, triumphs. He triumphs by, by not giving up.
0: Sort of the story as you're talking, I feel like, you know, every Genesis character, you know, is one who keeps them falling down and falling down and falling down. But the story of each of them is not with how they succeed. It's the fact that they get up again. And it sounds like Sandy just keeps on going. It, it also sounds to me, you know, again, I always think about my dad as a professor. And he said to me, the one thing about working with students is no matter how bad life gets, Working with students nourishes you and gives you an inner life. That seems to, to give Sandy his whole definition is what he's able to do for his students.
1: And sometimes he screws up. <laughs> sometimes right. he gives them bad advice. In many ways, the whole book is about one small piece of bad advice that he gave to one student and, and how that sort of steamrolls. But he's trying all the time. I just thought I'd read a, a section about football. Now, I happen to love sports, as you've you heard about the Maccabee. I'm still involved in sports to this day. And so um, I wasn't much of a football player, but I love football. And God help me! I wanted to write about being a football player. Sandy was a fullback. This is in a period, um, sort of in the late 1940s. He's he's playing high school ball, and you'll know, some of the some of the references to are to what football was in the 40s, not what football is today. So if I could, if I could read that, I will. This is a this is a memory. The day he remembered was spanking cold. The sunlight searing. The bleachers erupted when he and the team took to the field. He heard his name being chanted. Give me a D. Give me a Y. What's that spell? Sandy. And discerned Esther's voice, cheering loudest. Only his parents stayed silent, his mother's face embedded in a knitted scarf and his father rigid in a houndstooth coat and feathered fedora presiding over the gridiron like a courtroom. He strained not to look at him, to keep his eyes on the the defense and his mind on the play throughout the first quarter when he aimed for an early lead. And he got one. When everything, handoffs, the laterals gained yardage, one touchdown, two, and the third that he himself ran in from a draw, the crowd exploded. Esther raved, and even his mother might have rooted quietly into her muff. There was a reason that his classmates called him Supercoop, even the Appleton Gazette. Only his father remained unruffled. He watched, and he judged, and the drumsticks descended like gavels. Halftime brought a premature celebration, which he, as quarterback and captain, was duty-bound to suppress. Instead, wobbling in his cleats, he climbed onto one of the locker room's narrow benches and exhorted his teammates to stay focused. Half an hour was an eternity out there, and just about anything could happen. Anything did. In fewer minutes, the visitors racked up 24 points while their host remained scoreless. Suddenly, with time nearly expired, he found himself with his back to his own hole and the opponents impossibly distant. Yet this he realized was his moment. Scouts were reportedly observing from the stands armed with full college rides. Annapolis also expressed interest and he imagined himself, imagined himself bedecked in midshipman white with a gown stunning date on his sleeve. Yet his paramount concern was still the man in the houndstooth hound's tooth coat. No scholarship, no uniform could rival the glory of a single dip of that fedora's feather. The snap went off crisply, crisply and he fell back for a bomb. That's when the unexpected happened. Gaps yawned in the defensive line and revealed between it and the end zone, nobody. The ball swerved from behind his head to his armpit. Helmet lowered, he charged. He bolted, he shot. Never before, not even out of uniform had he sprinted so fast. The wind whistled through the single bar of his face mask and whirred around his ears. He could hear his own frantic breathing. And beyond that, the frenzied hoots of the crowd, thundering drums, confetti of autumn leaves. Past his own 30, 40, and into enemy turf, he churned a goalpost rising before him. He already saw himself kneeling beneath it and planting the ball in triumph. He saw Esther launching, pom- launching her pom poms and scampering out to embrace him, the scouts racing forward with contracts. He imagined his father still stayed in his Thanksgiving best but incontestably gleaming. Looking back, he would wonder why he hadn't performed the basic open field maneuver, zigzagging to avoid pursuers. Perhaps because he was so damn certain the absence of any defenders in front of him, meaning none were closing in from behind. After all, this was the most ecstatic moment of his life. Who could picture it ending? He would not remember that end, only a dull crack like that of a tree about to fall, which he not only heard, but felt. He no longer saw the goalposts, but only the sky and worried faces peering down at him. Someone asked questions, but his only answer was pain, a crazy pain that erupted after they lifted him. Then he noticed his leg trailing behind him, listless and twisted. He heard a scream, Esther's, but there was no sign of her or of his mother or anybody else in the crowd, only his father's expressionless face sealed in disappointment. <laughs>
0: Uh, imagery oh, is, sandy course, Cooper huh no it's just extraordinary extraordinary imagery what, what what's what's this whole is this a metaphor for his life what happens to him there
1: it's it's how one event can transform your entire life you know I, I had a similar event in my life it, it played out a little better I I thought that after I was in the Israeli army that I would attend the Iowa Iowa Writers' workshop and, um, and all my professors told me I was a shoe in, and this is where all the writers went. It's still to this day, they still go to the IRA writers' work. But I was—I thought about I'd go back. I thought the army had to go back to Hollywood and write scripts. I'm out guarding the ammunition dump and the rain and the negative, and the jeep comes by and they say, "Hey, Michael, there's a letter for you." And they throw this letter at me. I can see it spinning in the air <laughs> slowly, slow motion, and it's a rejection from the IRA writers' workshop. A, a couple of weeks later, I had gotten the results of my. Um, of my GRE test, which I had to take to get into Iowa, and I aced the test. I was never any good at, at standardized tests, but I, I did. I did so well that I thought, "Oh God, what should I do? Maybe I should go study Middle Eastern studies because that—that's what I had done as an undergraduate." So I ended up doing a PhD in Middle Eastern history, and the rest, as they say, is history. I never went to Hollywood, and I stayed in history. And that one event can set you off on a completely different trajectory. And for Sandy it meant not going to Annapolis, but meant going to a local teacher's college. And he doesn't get the stunning date on his arm. He marries Esther, the cheerleader, even though he gets a tremendous sense of fulfillment from, from, his, from his, his guidance counseling, a sense that somehow something was missed in his life. And he, had, he was leading a misled life.
0: So Temple Bethel is a character in your book. And, and I'm not sure if it's a Temple Bethel that is in South Orange or it's just a Temple no. Bethel. <laughs> but, but why- It's generic Temple Bethel. So why is it an important character to have in the book? It sounds like it's its own character in some ways.
1: It is very much its own character. And the rabbis in the book, you recognize there's a rabbi who's a senior rabbi. You don't really see it's the last scene because he's got an alcoholic problem, an alcoholism problem. But you have a junior rabbi and the uh, junior rabbi who was 1972, sort of a hippie rabbi who has posters of gold in my hair. And I, I think that because the synagogue was so important in my growing up and is very big on the Soviet Jewry movement, I was looking for spirituality and I wasn't finding it in that synagogue. It, it's that tension. Uh, I, I have a scene I wanted to read to you about uh, Sandy every once in a while, for reasons he doesn't even understand, likes to sit alone in the sanctuary. It's, it's a place where he finds peace. So I have a description of the sanctuary. Please, I'll read, You'll find this very familiar. Pinewood pews, stained glass depictions of biblical scenes too abstract to identify. A blood-red eternal flame burning electrically in its sconce. If the kitchen were hallowed, this was the holy of holies. Not that he frequented it much outside the holidays or understood a word of what he recited. Nevertheless, alone at night, with only the sound of his breath and his heartbeat in his ears, Sandy could almost feel spiritual. He entered solemnly and sat. Around him were walls lined with three-inch plaques, each one etched with a name. In loving memory of Max and Sylvia Eisenstein, one said, and another for my sister, Freda Hirsch, Who died in Auschwitz. There must have been hundreds. Sandy tried to imagine their lives, their joys and ultimate suffering, but his attention wandered from the memorials up to the pulpit that still reeked of Rabbi Isaacson's scotch behind the lectern to the ark. Framed between American and Israeli flags, this too was inscribed with lions. Rolling back the panels revealed velvet curtains and behind them the scrolls, silver crowned satin covered. The thought of them somehow disturbed Sandy too much wisdom trapped in darkness, he felt. Someone should let it out. Only one wall was empty, except for a quote. Something from the Bible, Sandy figured, probably a psalm. In wooden letters painted in gold, the Lord is near to all a call upon him, it said, to all a call upon him in truth. He questioned whether this was true. How many people had called only to go unanswered? How many called and suffered. Sitting upright, suddenly he realized how long he'd been wandering. Esther would be irked. He cast one last glance upward at the bubble. This supposedly supplied a glimpse of God, but the plexiglass was too weather-stained and the sky beyond it blackened. Still, he considered praying for his late mother, maybe, or his son, Joey, a prayer for Russell Pressman's success or even Howard Weintraub's, that he not screw up at blocking but instead, Stanley rose from the pew and escaped through the wrought iron doors. Down the corridor, he trundled to the reception hall that doubled as a gym.
0: Yeah, that, 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 I mean, you got it. <laughs> not just that, but that line that you uh, write, which I will not quote as, uh, as, as exact as you did, but the wisdom that is kept on the pulpit and not let out to the community. And then you have, I think his name is Stan, the young rabbi, the grateful dead, loving rabbi, peace and love. Right. <laughs> So is that the moment that you feel like you also, this is also the time in the 70s, Roger Cabinets writes about, you know, the Jew and the Lotus, not that long after that, where you have the Jubu, right? You know, Jews are going to synagogue to have their child become bar bat mitzvah and, um, you know, sort of fulfill their, their obligation. But for spirituality, they're going to the ashram. So you're building this tension here. This is exactly what's happening. It doesn't burst, I think, for another 10, 15 years or so after that. But it, but it stand the beginning of unfolding spirituality for the Jew that was coming to synagogue, but not getting the wisdom.
1: There's, I, I don't, the image comes of, of sort of of trying to get milk out of a <laughs> out of a thing that's not giving you the milk. Okay, yeah. and um and and that's sort of the way the way I think I felt. I think people of my generation felt that way certainly, and which is why these these cameo appearances were important for me um, because the Jewish community of the early 1970s is being buffeted in different directions. And one of them is Shlomo Kalimach, is, is this return to some type of spirituality through music. And, you know, he of course has become in retrospect controversial, but back then he was revolutionary. And that, uh, you know, you, you could sing a song, um, you know, that Oseh that, uh, Shalom and and what that meant for we didn't understand what it meant (laughs) but it 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 it, it spoke to us in a very deep way um the spirituality of his of his music the other uh direction we're going was the direction of the holocaust and i and young american jews will not understand this but when we grew up we did not talk about the holocaust we whispered about the holocaust behind closed doors when i was 15 at the jcc on northfield avenue I can close my eyes and see this too. I, I'm in the audience at 15 years old and there's a man up on the stage, uh, a wisp of a man with the hair sticking straight up. And he's talking about the Holocaust. And his name was Elie Wiesel, who later became a dear friend. And I, I couldn't believe there was someone actually on the stage talking about the Holocaust. Who does something like that? My father and his brother had fought in World War II, landed on Normandy. They kept an album down the basement and had all the photographs my uncle had taken of Dachau. I keep them all on my, on my cell phone today so to remind me all those photographs where do we keep that album we hit it so we the American Jewish community is becoming is coming to grips for the first time with the Holocaust and asking the question what do we do and what we and, and what didn't we do and why didn't we do it and the last thing was, was Merkahana, who yeah. also came to my synagogue he came and Miraculana be- was about was about rage. I didn't set out this way, but it, the African American characters in my book are, are completely, you know, free of anti-Semitism. And it's just it's interesting in view of what's happened in the relationship between our communities. And anti-Semitism was violent back then. It was, it was fists. It was it was punching. It was blood. I have can't see this on the Zoom. I have little scars on all my knuckles from teeth. And today, I
0: mean, so so. There's, yes, uh, a reawakening, or perhaps it was just latent and we didn't see it, anti-Semitism, and it's not, thank God, well, how could we say it's not violent after Pittsburgh, but it's not the same violent, I I grew up with the same kind of anti-Semitism in in Lindbrook, Long Island, where there there was that kind of, you know, scars from fists of fighting and, and pennies being thrown at me and all those kinds of things, but it's not exactly that way today. And what you have with it at the same time is a population of 18 to 35 year olds, who, when surveyed, are saying half of them don't necessarily think that Israel, you know, has to survive for us to survive, and all these other. So now you have anti-Semitism. It's not as overtly violent as you and I experienced growing up, and Jews who don't necessarily believe it's a problem. It, it's actually
1: it, believe it or not. It's actually worse than that because yeah. uh, anti-Semitism. There's a tendency in America to downgrade anti-Semitism to less than racist because racism is now being defined as in terms of power and race. And Jews are white and powerful and affluent. So hating them is not as bad as hating some other groups. Okay, <laughs> And it's been downgraded. And, and I see this even in, in my own family. Uh, you know, my, my, I said my father was passing away last November and I, I managed to get to the United States and, and be with him. And uh, we had a Thanksgiving meal where this was the subject of the Thanksgiving meal. Some of my, my nephews had experienced anti Semitism, but they were willing to look the other way. And I said, Well, if someone had, you know, if someone used the N word, would you look the other way so quickly? So, why is it you're looking the other way when people say a horrible things about Jews? And so, even some American Jews are internalizing that anti Semitism is not as bad as other forms of racism. And I think that's a, that to me is the most disturbing development because the minute we, it's a slippery slope. And we see where it's leading. We see it on jokes on Saturday Night Live that that aren't funny, okay? And people aren't apologizing for them. We see it, you know, certainly with uh, Carlson Tucker on, on Fox News and things that are being said that could never have been said 10 years ago, maybe not even five years ago, and are now, you know, get you know, sort of earn a shrug rather than outrage. You know, I have a very good, long-standing term relationship with the ADL. And I've also been disturbed by, by the ADL's reluctance to take on all forms of anti-Semitism, not, not to cut any slack. I don't care who is it. I don't care if it's a brown person, a black person, whatever person saying anti-Semitism, you cannot, should not be cutting anybody slack, any slack for being an anti-Jewish racist.
0: No, no, we want to be Shabbos Jews. We don't want to be no. Jewish because someone hates us. You seem to be utterly passionate about novel writing and about novelists. Does one top the other for you?
1: No, they, but they come from different parts of the brain. So I, I, I sit, I write in the morning and, and I write fiction. I usually write early in the morning fiction about six. And then I'll turn around and I'll write um, something for, for, I write a lot for the Atlantic Monthly. I'll write something about the Middle East or Israeli politics, Atlantic Monthly. We just recently had a very long article about the Iran nuclear deal. But they come from completely different parts of my brain. And so it's, it never interferes. So it's uh, very different.
0: Or, or as a um, rabbi's prerogative, maybe one comes from the soul and one comes from the brain because your soul seems to soar when you speak about your novels. Uh, Ambassador Michael Oren, thank you very much. Thank uh, you, everybody. Shalom. Thank you. Shalom. thank you for listening to this edition of Call Jeshurun. If you would like to learn more, visit our website at tbj.org and follow us on social media for updates on all our upcoming opportunities for engagement. We really hope to see you soon.